Hi, hello, welcome. 欢迎大家 to another episode of Hot and Sour Soup for the Soul. Today we are chatting with Jezer Shaw, a product manager on a mission to make technology more accessible, and recipient of Forbes 30 Under 30 for 2020 in the consumer tech category. Previously, Jezer brought Twitter to a hundred new countries with tweets spanning seventy languages, and rolled out Twitter's first web redesign in nearly a decade. Today, she continues to democratize technology at Code Academy, where she is building products to support people around the globe on their journey to coding literacy. Jezer also happens to be a first-generation Indian American who grew up in Dubai, but has wasted no time in catalyzing change since moving to the U.S. In this episode, we chat with Jezer about how to be an entrepreneur and drive transformation within large companies, how to be an effective idea broker. And how to find home, regardless of where you find yourself. Stay tuned. Hi, Jezer. So nice to have you on the show. So excited to be here. So, to give you a background on the framework, our episode is going to be broken out into a three-part act: the past, present, and future, all as it pertains to your relationship with your Asian American heritage and how you've used that multicultural lens to uplevel in both your life and your professional work. Sound good? Sounds great. Yeah. Right. Let's do it. So, we're going to start with your past. Take a trip in the time machine. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your family, and your upbringing? Yeah. So I grew up. I was born in India, but I spent most of my time growing up in Dubai. I lived there from like the ages of two to till I was in eleventh grade. So whatever age that is. And I am、um, originally Indian. For those who don't know much about Dubai or the the UAE, the UAE is like this country situated in the Middle East. Tends to have like a huge expat population. So a lot of people from different backgrounds, from India, Pakistan, from some of the Asian countries around there, and then also from Europe. So、um, it's actually quite a like a melting pot of places and people. And so. Uh, yeah, when I was growing up in Dubai, I found that、um, most of our time was spent as a family, and as、um, my sister and I were growing up around Indian people. Like even though it's so multicultural, a lot of the communities they would usually stick together. So there was a sort of like comfort from like home and like having someone who had similar experiences to you. When I was in Dubai, I went to an all Indian school, and one of the interesting things with that is that I never felt like a minority. I was always surrounded by people who looked like me, and had similar experiences to me. Yeah, what、um, does that mean to you, feeling like a minority? Yeah, I was I was really grateful for that experience. Like it allowed me to truly embrace my culture, and not in some ways not think about my culture as much. Like it was just part of who I was, and people understood it. There wasn't any trying to figure out like where you come from, what your culture is like, and why you do things the way that you do them. Like India in itself is quite a multicultural place, but、mm-hmm. like going. A school that had so much diversity allowed it, it to be like fairly normal as well. Right, there's no Indian archetype because everyone's Indian, and so it becomes readily apparent.
transparent that everyone's an individual. Exactly. So yeah, that was sort of my school life. And when we were growing up, my mom and dad, like most Asian families, we were focused on collectivism rather than individualism. So mm -hmm. we focused a lot on like family. We're very family oriented. We would go back to visit our families in India every summer. And the other thing that I feel like when I was looking back at my experience as a child is there's a sport in India. It's a sport called cricket. And so growing up, we used to play a lot of cricket, actually. My dad really emphasized sports early on in our lives to the point that we actually both, my sister and I, went on to play international cricket and represented the UAE in like tournaments abroad. And that, that's actually weirdly my first ever job that I got paid for. Like there was a lot of emphasis on like sort of understanding what it means to be on a team yeah. early on in my life. And I think that actually really in some ways still defines the way I behave in a team. Mm -hmm. What kind of lessons did you learn while you were playing cricket on a team that you still utilize today? Yeah, I think uh, one of the one of the things that I learned is that it's really not beneficial to think about like the one person on the team that is in a given moment, like might have impacted the way we played or like might have impacted like how we did in a match. Every day is different. Like every day, some people perform differently and it's hard to always keep it consistent. Everything that we do together, even if we lose, we lose it as a team. It's not on one individual person. I think that has really helped me, especially as a PM, think about giving people the agency to own the decisions that we make while not putting everything on them as the decision maker. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Also a tangential question. You mentioned your first paycheck came as a cricket athlete. Do you remember what you spent that first paycheck on? Uh, you know, I, I think I probably gave it to my mom and dad. <laughs> Talk about the collective over the individual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, this is this is a very strong pattern when I was growing up. My dad is Muslim and we celebrate Eid. So there's something called Eidi, which is like you get money every time there's Eid. All that money always went back to my parents. I never got to keep any of it. I don't think I ever went to a mall to go shopping and spend money. It was always like my, my parents would go get the stuff. And then I would usually be like out playing basketball or cricket. Like I was more focused on sports than going to the mall at that age. Yeah. Getting gifted money was more ceremonial than anything. It's like, okay, this happened, but really it's an aggregate bank account and it rolls up to my parents. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing happened with Chinese New Year in my family. You know, my peers would be so jealous about the red envelopes that I'd be getting. And they're like, oh, you're so lucky. Like, you don't even have to wash dishes to get your allowance. You <laughs> just get money delivered to you every year. And I'm like, yeah, but then that 100 bucks is never to be seen again. <laughs> it's like, it's just a known truth. Like, you, you, when you're young, you don't actually get to keep any of your money. You might have like a few coins in your piggy bank, but that's about it. <laughs> oh, that no, that brings me up to another thing, which is, um, one thing that I felt growing up, and I feel like this might be an Indian slash Asian thing, is that they just felt like there was a lot of support and security from my family. There was never this idea that once I turn 18, like I would leave the house and I'd be on my own. We would always sort of like support each other. And that was something I found really interesting when I eventually moved to the US. The, co the concept of like, when you turn 18, you leave the house. Is like, it was not something that was, that was talked about when we were young. Yeah. And is it reciprocal? You have the sense of your parents look out for you and for an indefinite period of time. But then once you can stand on your own two feet and you're financially secure, then you pay it back to the parents and possibly down the road, they come live with you when they're of old age. Yes, absolutely. Like I, when I talk to my parents now, they're like, so when are we moving in? Like we've done the groundwork, we've laid the foundation. Like when are we going to um, start living with you? <laughs>
So it sounds like for the most part, you had a jovial relationship with that cultural heritage that you shared with your parents. But did that fluctuate in your adolescence? I understand you moved from the UAE over to California in high school. So how was that transition for you? Yeah, so to set a bit of context, when I moved, I was halfway through 11th grade and probably the most awkward time to change schools and to move to a new country. I would not recommend putting anyone through that. And there was also just a ton of culture shock when I moved to the US. Like when I moved, I moved to a small suburb um, near Sacramento called Roseville, California. And everything was so different about the way that I grew up in Dubai. For example, we didn't have co-ed classrooms in Dubai, like the schools that I went to, like girls and guys were always separate. Um, That was mind blowing to me to like to be able to sit next to a guy in class and that be totally okay. But there were also other things. This is also like something that that most people probably wouldn't be shocked by. But the fact that you could wear whatever you wanted to school. Growing up in Dubai, we always had uniforms. And that's because almost everyone went to private school. So you didn't have to think about like what what you wore, what people would think about what you wore. None of the external like family life came into school. But when I moved to California, I felt such like intense pressure to fit in. Like my clothes weren't right. My accent wasn't right. People didn't know where I was from. It was a lot of shock at once. And so I slowly started suppressing that side of me. Like I was like, okay, I'm just going to try and assimilate as much as possible. To this day, actually, when I speak to people who have American accents, I'll have like a pretty good American accent. But Mm -hmm. as soon as I switch to talking to my mom and dad, my, my accent completely changes. It goes back to like what my original accent was. And it's been suppressed because of the experiences in high school. Like I did not want to stand out. I already had such a hard time adjusting. I just wanted people to think that I was just another American girl who just happened to move from a different country. So you pull off an amazing feat from moving to California and in grade 11 and then attending UC Berkeley. How is that transition for you having gone from the UAE where you were surrounded by people who shared a similar cultural background to moving to a place where you were considered foreign to then going to Berkeley where there are more plentiful Asian folks. Yeah, I think Cal honestly really changed the way that I saw myself. It really helped me re-embrace my Indian identity. For example, when I was in high school, my mom is super, she's super proud to be Indian. She loves the culture, brings so much color to life. She wears like really bright clothing. And when I was in high school, I used to complain to her about my clothes all the time. And she would be like, why don't you wear this like really cool Indian outfit, make it a bit Western. You could look really edgy. And I was like, no, that is not happening. I am like trying to fit in. I'm just trying to wear jeans and a t shirt and make it to school and make it back. But once I started going to Cal, I actually, such a small change, but my wardrobe actually changed. Like I started wearing like a lot more dupattas, which is like an essentially like an Indian scarf. I started adding so much like color and pop that was derived from like Indian clothing into my wardrobe. Oh, it's so poetic. It's like you rebloomed when clothing can speak. I think the way that we dress ourselves is such a potent way to tell a personal narrative. Great. So we yeah. have traveled into more or less the present. Your time at Cal and you choosing to study computer science, which has been the horsepower driving your career over the years. So can you share with us how you got into computer science, especially after being a youth athlete? I mean, you had a promising cricket career, girl. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I actually considered playing for the U.S. when I moved, but living in Roseville and commuting to San Jose, which is where the team practice was too much for me. So I ended up not doing that. But yeah, so actually right before I came to Cal, I told my parents that I was not going to study. I was not going to become an engineer. And uh, I went to Cal thinking I would study business. And I actually did end up majoring and I went to Haas. But halfway through my time in at Cal, my roommate actually was sitting in, in the hall. And I remember going over to her and being like, yo, what's like, what are you doing? How are you able to create so much? And she's like, oh yeah, this is like coding. You can do so much with it. And I remember when I understood what she was studying, it blew my mind. For me, it was, it was so empowering, just the ability to build whatever you can think of, whatever you can imagine. And the internet is pretty accessible. So you can, can like build things from there. You can actually impact human lives. I was absolutely blown away. And I was like, this is, I think, I like think I want to study this. And so she actually is the key piece of like me getting into CS. And I decided to major in CS my junior year of college. If you know anything about college, that is the worst time to decide to add a new major. So I stayed an extra semester at Cal actually to finish my CS major. And I, I do think that it changed my life and like got me to where I am today. I decided like, I was like, okay, I, I, like business a little bit like I once I actually started in the business major I realized that it wasn't for me like I hated accounting I hated finance then like towards the end I was like I did a few internships in consulting like at PwC and I realized that's not where I want to be I did a few internships at startups as an engineer and also realized that that's not really where I want to because I well, A, I felt like I wasn't that great, but B, I also felt like the part of business that I liked was being able to work with yeah. people directly. And then this this career path was emerging at the time, which is like, let's like, how do you be a, become a PM? Like, what is a PM? APM programs were like the rage back then. That's how I started okay. going down that So path. before you jumped in full force yeah. junior year into deciding to also major in computer science, did you do anything to get your feet wet, a test drive of computer science before just deciding, okay, I'm going to pursue this as a major? You know, I don't think I did. And I think one of the things I really valued about the community or the CS community at Cal is they were just really welcoming and warm and like trying to help as many people learn how to code because they knew that it was new for a lot of people, which was in stark contrast to the business school mm-hmm. that was very competitive. But yeah, they were so welcoming. I remember my first ever homework assignment for CS. Literally, I had no idea what to do. I, and some random person in the lab just walks up to me and is like, hey, I know this is the homework and I can see you're kind of like struggling with it. I think like stayed for an hour helping me. And I was like, this is awesome. Like I want to be surrounded by yeah. these kind of people. Okay, well, you have a few people to thank in that CS path. One person running into the hallway and seeing them yeah. basically <laughs> creating the Mona Lisa on their laptop via code. And that second person, the gentle spirit who came over for no reason than just to be helpful. Little acts of kindness go a long way. Absolutely agree. Okay, so your CS major, that worked out very well for you because speaking of the super covetable APM programs, you did accept a full-time role at Twitter upon graduation working as a project manager. So Mm -hmm. share with us a little bit of that journey and the work that you did at Twitter. Yeah, so right after I graduated, I joined... Twitter as an APM associate product manager. And it was probably one of the best things that I did. I would say that I spent a lot of time working on the consumer side of things. I worked on a project called Twitter Lite that was that thought about how we could bring Twitter to emerging markets where people are data device or network constrained. So they might have older phones, they might not want to use as much data. So how can we give them control over that? And also they might not have great bandwidth. Real quick on Twitter Lite. 
Jesper is being super humble. Twitter Lite allowed Twitter to enter into 100 countries and add 70 languages to their platform. Do you know how users in these emerging markets that are using Twitter Lite, how they're using the Twitter product? Yeah, it completely varies from country to country. So Brazil, for example, is an extremely chatty country. Like they like to tweet a lot. They engage a lot with other people on the platform. People in, in India, for example, use it to find information. I think news is a huge, like, use case for Twitter. So a lot of people use it for news. I think that getting exposed to that so early in my career was definitely changed the way that I think about building products. Yeah. Out of the box, the product looks the same, but how it's put to use is so drastically different depending on geo. Okay. So Twitter Lite was one thing. And then there's also the desktop experience. Yeah. So that was probably one of the more defining moments of my career. It, which was def- redesigning and rebuilding the Twitter.com experience. That was a quite defining because of a few reasons. I think one, obviously the scale of the project, but for me, it was also really about the team that I worked with. I just think that the team that I worked with really cared about the people that use the product and that just made it better. Working with people who care about your customers is great because there is this perception like, like, you know, the PM needs to care about the customer the most, but I think it's everyone's responsibility. And the team that I worked with, everyone was extremely customer minded. Everyone cared about the experience. We spent a lot of time like talking about like, what do we want to prioritize because we were mostly aligned on like the customer needs. That reminds me of Albert Einstein quote um, where he says, if you gave me one hour to solve a problem, I would spend 55 minutes thinking about the problems and five minutes solving it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We Thinking about the right problem to solve is, I, I think, so important and underrated in product management. Do you have um, any tactical yeah. advice as to how to break down a large problem into small ones and then prioritize how to solve them? Mm, That's a great question. I think that it's important to have a clear decision-making framework before you think about what problem you're going to solve because it's important to understand like what you're prioritizing for. And I think one of the best ways to identify which problem you want to solve is by thinking about what your mission for the product is, what your vision for the product is, and like how are you measuring success and what projects will sort of help you validate major hypotheses that you think will help you get closer Mm -hmm. to that vision and mission. Yeah. Are there any ways in which you brought this framework into your personal life, solving a non-work related problem? Oh, another great question. One of the things that I did recently was I took some time off to travel. And that decision was to solve a very specific problem, but I had to spend a lot of time like thinking about, is this the right problem? And is this the way I want to approach it? And for me, the problem was I was feeling a bit burnt out and I also was looking for inspiration outside the US. I felt like I had been in the Silicon Valley like for such a long time, almost everyone works in tech. So I wanted to step away from that, take some time off, go different places, meet different people, think about other things that I might wanna do. Like when I was traveling, one of my goals was to like determine if I want to stay in tech. And I decided that I would stay in tech for now, but I don't think I wanna stay in it in the long term. I think that's one of the things I really valued when I was traveling. I got to spend a lot of time appreciating Mother Earth and also coming to the realization that we aren't taking care of it. Every single country that I went to, and I, off the top of my head, I think I went to like between eight to 10 countries, every single country 
was talking about climate change, how their summers or their winters had completely changed because of climate change. When I was in Iceland, we went to see a glacier and the parking lot for the glacier was, it used to be like a, when you parked, you could get to the glacier in like 15 minutes. And when we parked, it took us an hour to get to the glacier. Wow. Like it had receded that much over the course of one guy's lifetime. And he was like probably in his thirties. I think that's where collectivism actually comes in handy because we're not just thinking about the individual. We're thinking if we were to think about Earth as a community, what would we be prioritizing as issues to fix rather than if we were just thinking about our individual happiness and goals? Yeah. Talking about making impact at scale, because that's what it takes in order to solve something of global scale. When you were at Twitter, going back real quick, I think oftentimes people think about working in a large company and think about becoming a cog in a wheel and they're one member of this behemoth of a ship and there's nothing that they can do to steer it and it can feel kind of discouraging at times. But on the flip, I think there's also the perspective that you can take where when you're an individual working at a behemoth, you're not necessarily in the passenger seat. And if you are even able to move this boat by an inch, you're moving so many people. So there's a sense of being an intrapreneur as opposed to an entrepreneur when you're working in a large company. Did you feel that you were empowered to mm -hmm. be an entrepreneur at Twitter? And if you did, what kind of steps did you take to capitalize on that opportunity? Yeah, I I was empowered to be an entrepreneur at that type of definition at Twitter. To give you a very concrete example of where I think Twitter actually demonstrated this is we have hack weeks. Uh, most companies have hack weeks, which is time for employees to sort of focus on non-work things and build whatever they want, whatever they've ideas that they've thought of. And one of the hack weeks that I worked on, I built a product called Bookmarks because I thought that it was a very clear need. I'd like dug into research reports and I'd found that one of the parts of like information gathering or like consuming information on Twitter was um, consuming it and then saving it to come back to later. And there was no mechanism for you to do that. So for Hack Week, we built this out, but it was pretty functional. And then the consumer product team saw that at the time and was like, this is awesome. We should ship this. And it went from being like a Hack Week project to being an actual product that is now, it's a feature within the app. And at the individual level too, between bookmarks, Twitter Lite, and the desktop update for Twitter, it seems like you are really good at selling your ideas and selling new product features. Can you share with the listeners a little bit on your strategy? How can you package an idea in a way that you're able to get buy-in from others? Yeah, when it comes to ideas, Personally, my framework has always been writing things down and thinking about like the cohesive story and how it fits into the broader mission of the company. And also thinking about how it plays into like the current situation that your team might be in. Like if they're working on a huge infrastructural project, it might not be the right time to like come in with a new feature idea. But once there is momentum to start building new things, capitalize on that momentum and think big. I also think that Leveraging your team is really important. Great ideas don't come from one individual. Your entire team has great ideas. So thinking about how you can get them bought in through like either brainstorming or setting up avenues for them to share what they're thinking about is really important to make sure that you find the space for innovation no matter where you are, because I do think it's very easy mm -hmm. to feel like a cog in the wheel. The best way to not feel like that or to validate if that's how you're going to feel like for the rest of your time is to see, like test the waters with an idea and 
see how people react to it and if there's at least appetite for trying new things. I think tech is probably one of the places where it's easier to come in with an idea from the ground up and get support. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like with all of the flack that tech gets, there's a sense that with software, you're able to test a lot cheaper than you are with a physical product. Yeah, there's something to be said about the experimentation and the creativity that tech begets. Um, when you said experimentation, that actually sparked another thing. I think with ideas also, it's really important to have like a strong hypothesis and like validate that through experimentation or through user feedback. I think it's too risky to build something and then decide if that's the right thing to build. It's much easier to take an idea, have a hypothesis, and then test that hypothesis as cheaply as possible before taking it further. All right. So... Jizzler, we've been talking a lot about Twitter, but I understand between Twitter and Frontline Foods, now you are at Code Academy. Let's talk about the next 12 months for Jizzler and the work that you're doing at Code Academy right now. What led you to join this education platform, this boot camp for aspiring coders, if you will? Maybe you saw some of yourself in the audience that they're speaking to. I'd love to hear more about the work that you're doing there. Yeah. I think I could draw it all the way back to when I first came to the U.S. When I first came to the U.S., I actually spent a lot of my time studying. So when you're when you're in school, they assign like even or odd problems when you take math classes. I was the kid that would do both even and odd because I had that much time and I was that excited to be studying. <laughs> because of that, I, I actually found myself in a situation where a lot of people were coming to me for help and I started tutoring and I actually like tutored at a professional tutoring place. And I, I saw the value in education and how it can actually change people's lives. It gave me a lot of fulfillment to be able to like equip someone else with the skills to improve their lives. That sort of was where my interest in education sparked. And then when I was at Cal, like I mentioned, CS sort of changed my life for me. I think it, it sounds a bit dramatic, but it did. It like truly opened new doors for me. I think focusing on that type of education was also very interesting to me and thinking about how we can bring that to more people, like sort of democratize the access to that type of education. I wanted to move from the consumer space to the ed tech space and it's a very competitive space that's sort of how I ended up at Code Academy yeah they say knowledge is power right and through this you are able to empower a swath of people what does the demographics look like for users of this kind of software so with COVID, there's actually been a huge increase in the demand for ed online education. There are tons of platforms that are, like I said, it's very competitive space. There are tons of platforms like Khan Academy, Coursera, edX. Lots of people are starting to utilize those platforms. And I think a percentage of them are starting to realize that they can learn so much without having to pay that hefty college fee. Going to college in America is absurdly expensive and people have so many loans to pay off. And I think if there are more ways for us to equip people with the skills that they need to go on and have jobs and like do awesome things with their, with their careers, I think that the world will be a better place. As you up-level the brain power per capita in the U.S., what is one motto that you are taking with you? I think one motto that I've taken with me is to question the status quo. I think that actually it's a Haas principle, but I've held it very close to my chest since I have I was in school because I, I actually truly think that education is an industry that should and will probably be disrupted soon. I think there's lots of industries that have been disrupted by tech and education is one of the hardest ones. There's so much that can be done to like make it easier for, for people to learn and also give equipped teachers with the tools that they need. I think like we as a generation are starting to just 
question the way things are and why they are the way they are. Um, I think questioning the status quo has also led me to perhaps like think about getting involved with government. That's something that the Black Lives Matter movement has taught me is we depend maybe a little bit too much on just voting as a mechanism of change, but I think there's an opportunity for us to be involved in government as well and actually be some of the drivers of change. Questioning the status quo again, like what it like what qualifications does one need to have to like join government? We need more diversity across almost every industry. And it's always really nice to have people come in with different perspectives because it definitely challenges the way that you think and challenges your underlying assumptions, which can help you build better products and also become a better person. Well, that is such a catchphrase. Build better products, become a better person. Question the status quo and rethink convention. It's trite but true. Nothing changes if nothing changes. So summon the change that you want to see. Summon that within yourself, but also within your community. And a question that I like to ask all of our Hot and Fire Soup for the Soul guests is how you've harnessed your cultural identity and your multicultural perspective into a personal or professional advantage. Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things that I've been able to harness is my focus on relationships. I think coming from a community where you focus a lot on like family, community, and are more or less individual focused, more community focused has always made me value relationships a lot more. And I think that has given me the ability to build trust with a lot of people that I work with. Um, If you spend a lot of time with this person at the office, like they will start to shape your life. And I think it's important to focus on things outside of work when it comes to building relationships. The other thing I think is around flexibility and resilience. Um, This one's a bit unique to my situation, but I haven't really had a permanent home for a very long time. Most people who live in Dubai as expats, know that it's not a permanent place like you can never become a citizen of uae and at some point you will have to go back to wherever home is um and so dubai was never a permanent place i absolutely love my time there but it was never going to be a permanent place and it was something that was acknowledged within our family the uh, when we moved to the u.s lots of culture shock like i mentioned so it took a while for the u.s to feel like home while it might seem a bit sad at first i think what it's allowed me to build is like flexibility i sort of define what home means for me now like home for me is sometimes it's like on my phone because home is like where i can see my family and it's usually on my phone through one of the many apps that i have home is also sort of the people that i surround myself with and i think Again, I feel like it comes back to relationships. I think the experiences that I've had with like moving so much has really made me value relationships. Things might change at the drop of a hat, but the skills to create a home are within you. Basically, you have that toolkit and the timber and the nails and the hammer and all. And it ties back well, too, to what you were saying earlier about being an effective salesperson of ideas when you are a product manager and building those relationships, because those are the relationships and that like line of intimacy that you can leverage to get your ideas into motion. Thank you so much, Jizzer. Thank you so much for having me. And that does it for today's episode. As always, thank you listener for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, let us know, leave us a review on Apple podcast. Additionally, there is also more to Hot and Sour Soup for the Soul beyond the podcast that you're listening to right now. We are a multi-sensory media brand after all. If you have appetite for more, you can check us out at www.thebaybrigade.com. We'll see you there. Until next time, 
Goodbye. Zai Jian. Toodaloo.